Well, we have a special treat this morning. It's my pleasure to introduce from our Southgate Drama Team and Ministry. We're presenting Become. It's a dialogue read by Rebecca Crawford. Enjoy. Hello, God. Hello. I, I'm falling apart. Can you put me back together? Oh, I'd rather not. Why? Because you're not a puzzle. What about all the pieces of my life that keep falling to the ground? Leave them there for a while. They fell for a reason. Let them be there for a while, and then decide if you need to take any of those pieces back. You don't understand. I'm breaking. No, no, you don't understand. You are growing. What you feel now are growing pains. You're getting rid of the things and people in your life that are holding you back. The pieces are not falling down. The pieces are being put in place. Relax. Take a deep breath and let those things you no longer need fall down. Stop clinging to the pieces that are no longer for you. Let them fall. Let them go. Once I start doing that, what will I have left? Ah, only the best pieces of yourself. But I'm afraid to change. I keep telling you, you are growing. You are becoming. Becoming who? Becoming more beautiful who I created you to be. A person of light. Love, charity, hope, courage, joy, mercy, grace, and compassion. I made you for so much more than those shallow pieces you choose to adorn yourself with and that you cling to with so much pride, and fear. Let those fall off you. I love you. Don't fear change. Grow. Don't fear change. Become. Become who I created. I'm going to keep reminding you this until you remember. 
Oh, there goes another piece. Yes, let it be like this. So, I'm not broken? No, no. But you are breaking through the darkness like dawn. It's a new day. Become. Become who you really are. Okay, Lord. But please help me. Amen, amen. I need some muscle to help me with this. <laughs> Appreciate you. Thanks so much. And thank you so much, uh, Miss Marcia, and thank you, Rebecca. And you know, what drama can do is help give a visual to what an inner dialogue is happening to many of us. And, you know, as we are finishing our series uh, today on identity, it, this, this piece was so fitting. And that there is a tension, there is a struggle at times, regardless of how long you've been a believer, this tension of this is my DNA, a son, a daughter of God. But I live in this fallen world, and many times I put my attention on the wrong things, and I find hurts and pains, and then I want God to do the heart surgery, but it's painful and it's difficult. And it's something that we all go through. And so I just love the visual statement that is there. And today, we are going to conclude. Uh, we've talked about the body, the soul, and the spirit. We've talked about our true identity. We've talked about why God made us the way that we are. And today, I want to seal all of that by talking about the power of the heart, not only the renewed mind, but guarding the heart, everything God has declared over us, everything that he said about us, that we can guard that and that we can hold near and dear to it so that it can be expressed from us. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this church. We thank you, God, for your presence. We thank you for what you're doing in and through us. And now as we conclude this series, we pray that you would not only just be with me in the words that I speak, but Father, every single heart in this room to be touched by heaven, to be given a direct word from you. Let something that is said today, like what happened in our worship, where hearts were healed and joy was deposited, let the things we discover in scripture today change some things about us, help us on the journey of becoming. Go before us now. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Years ago, probably about uh, 2013, uh, I was in a pretty bad car accident. Uh, in my little city, we had this large intersection, and something went wrong with the power, so it was blinking red lights. And as we all know, we treat that like a stop sign. And so I came up to the front, and it was my turn. I looked both ways, and I waited for the other cars, and I proceeded to go into a rather large intersection. And in the middle of that, I'm driving slowly, and I look over, and I see that all of the lights automatically turned green. There was a malfunction in the computer system. So as I'm in the intersection, two other cars see green and were a ways back. And at full speed, I got T-boned by a Dodge Ram and a Toyota Camry. Completely totaled my car. Praise God, I was able to, to make it to the side of the road. I had no real injuries other than some lower back pain, which is, you know, acceptable. Uh, I'm still praying it away. But in that car accident, I was, I was shocked and I was hurt and it, it, it was confusing and we had to battle the city and so forth. And I loved that car. We had just paid it off. It was, a, it was a 2013 Chevrolet Malibu. Chevys are near and dear to my heart. We just paid it off. I'm like, oh, bummer. But praise God, great insurance. And so they gave us top dollar. 
And now that I had a truck and, and my wife was looking for a cute little car for herself that she can drive around in, and she had been begging me for months to get a Kia Soul, like a bright red Kia Soul, okay? And this was in 2013 when they were still pretty new, and they had those commercials with the hamsters. Y'all remember the hamsters and the Kia Soul commercials? And my wife was begging me for this car, and I'm thinking, I don't want to drive around in the hamster mobile, like... <laughs> And guys, you know what I'm talking about. You have your truck and so forth, but when it's in the shop, what do you have to drive? Your wife's car. And I don't want to be cruising around in a bright red Kia Soul with the fuzzy pink steering wheel cover, okay? It's just not my vibe. And so we got our check from the insurance, and we, we went to, uh, to the dealerships, and I avoided the Kia dealership like they had a plague. I was like, nope, we're not going there. We'll be at Chevrolet. We'll find you something nice. And I encouraged my wife. I'm like, the Malibu was awesome. You loved it. I loved it. You know, it's great. Why don't we just go for another one of those? And sure enough, that stinking car dealer, they had a bright red Kia Soul near new on the lot. And she just freaked out. She's like, it's a sign of the Lord. I said, or the devil, <laughs> or the devil, you know, you know, ask for wisdom there. And uh, the, the uh, salesman came up to us and said, hey, uh, she liking that Kia Soul? I'm like, no, no, we're not leaving here today with the Kia Soul. I really like the Malibus. I just got into a, a horrible car accident, and that little tiny car doesn't settle well. I want something bigger, more midsize, and go, oh, well, sir, the salesman was good. It was good. He says, sir, did you not know that the Kia Soul actually has a greater crash test than the Malibu? In fact, it has a five-star all the way around, including the roof. And it has a 100,000-mile bumper-to-bumper warranty. If a shopping cart so much hits your car, bring it on in for free, and we'll take care of it. I'm like, really? Really, dude? That's, that's how you got to do me? So we ended up next to a giant cardboard cutout hamster taking a picture of our brand-new Kia Soul. And so, you know, it was a nice car. I'm not gonna, there were many times where I took her car rather than my truck to save some gas, and I had no problem with it. It was a wonderful car. But see, two things had to happen in order to make that car become a reality on our driveway. The first thing that had to happen was my wife's desire. You know, scriptures talk about that if we draw near to the Lord, he will bless us with the desires of our heart. She had a strong desire for that one particular car. It was her prayer. It was what she would fast over. She wanted that car. For me, I had a value in my heart that said, I value safety above all else. And I want this type of car, not a tiny car. So the salesman had to rewire my value system in order to show and give new perspective that this car was actually more safe than the one I was going after. So there were two things that were happening on a heart level that we had to change. And, and the Bible speaks so much about the power of the heart and really the center of who we are as a person, as a spiritual being, the power of the heart. In Matthew 15, Jesus talks about in the same way that the body takes in food and it's eliminated so the, the heart takes things in, and from the heart can have evil thoughts and sin and murders and idolatry and all other things that can flow out of the heart. And in Luke 6, verse 45, it talks about that the good man stores up good things that is in his heart, and the evil man stores up evil things that are in our heart. The, the heart is a, is a place where our emotions can rest, where our personality can, can be affected, where our mind can be renewed. You know, the, the heart in the Hebrew, actually, one of the definitions means seat of emotions, seat of thought, seat of emotions, a place where we can meditate either on the things of God and his truth or meditate on our worries and our fears. Our heart is very much like a garden. You know, in the parable of the, the sower and the seeds, you know, the ground really is a representation of the human heart. 
and our hearts are like a garden. And you know what? I can tell what you have planted and what seeds you have sown in your garden by what grows. So if you have zucchini or basil or cucumbers or whatever else, I know that you put those seeds in the ground. And our lives are the same way. When you have an outburst of anger, well, somewhere along the road, you sowed a seed of anger. You know, if there's a sin that came forth or some bad habit, there's seeds that are being deposited in our heart. And we need to be careful because what we put in, there's an overflow of the heart that comes out in our behavior, our reactions, in our thoughts, and the way we carry ourselves. I had a friend who was in uh, Spanish ministry, and he went through a season where there was a lot of turmoil in marriages. And he was laughing because he says, I don't know what it is about this season in my life, but it seems like everybody's having marriage trouble. And after service, at the altar time, I'm constantly getting wives and husbands coming up to me for prayer. But the funny thing is, it's not husband and wife together. No, the wife will come down. She's like, oh, pastor, you need to pray for my husband. You need to pray for my husband. He's full of anger. He's in sin. He won't receive anything I tell him. He's not praying. He's not going to church like he should. All these type of things. Pray for my husband. Then five minutes later, the husband will come down. Oh, pastor, you need to pray for my wife. Oh, my Lord. There's a spirit of stubbornness in there. And, and they're praying for the other person and not even caring about their own hearts. You know, before you can, you can cast stones, you like take a look at your own life. You know, don't worry about the speck. You know, worry about this gigantic log that's sticking out of your own face. And we don't tend to the issues of our heart. Instead, we look to the faults of others. And Proverbs 4.23, and it's really just the thesis, the main thing I want to focus on here today, says, above all else, guard the heart, for it is the wellspring of life. We need to guard the heart. And unfortunately, Western Christianity has morphed itself into this institute of behavior modification, where the church should be this living organism of a family that is transforming into greater Christ-likeness and helping to exhort one another and edify one another so that we can be the expression of God's love and power. Rather than that, the church has become a judgmental place where we're so focused on people's actions, so focused on people's behaviors. And so you come to church, you say, oh, you need to fix that and we need to change that or we can't have you be a part of our congregation because you're involved in, in that sin or that thing. And we need to start at a heart level to look at sin differently. Not that I just want to change my behavior, but I want to change myself to be more transformative into Christ-likeness. So when you sin, when you make a mistake, when you fail, when you falter, it's not so much, wow, I really messed up. I'm a horrible person, which is not the truth. And they say, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be more disciplined. You can try that. See how that goes for you. Try it for a while. It probably will fail. Rather than saying, I'm just going to do better, I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to go stronger, we need to stop and say, where did that come from, Lord? What seed did I allow in my heart? Why did I allow that to take root? Can you help me to renew my mind, change my thinking, give me a brand new perspective so that I'm not, not thinking on these things and, and reacting in these things? We need to be watchful of what seeds we're allowing in our garden. God's not going to stop the seeds that we allow into our heart. We have free will, and we need to do some weeding from time to time. And in our lifetime, there's really only two types of hearts that we will have in this world. The first one is a tender heart, a sensitive heart, an attentive heart towards God, or we're going to have a hardened heart towards the Lord. So you're either going to be sensitive to the world and hardened to God or sensitive to God and hardened to the world. There's really no in-between. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. You're either going to be devoted to one and hate the other. 
And the same with our hearts. We can't be wishy-washy in the world and then and think we're going to be fully devoted to God. We can't serve two different masters. And regardless of how long we've been a Christian, we are not immune to a hardened heart because we live in this world. Bad things happen to good people. And if we're not careful, we can allow the hurts and the wounds and the pains to paint a different image of the Father and allow us to, to hide ourselves from him because of our pain. Now, right here on my hand, you can't see it, but I have this tiny little dot, and it's a callus. And I remember when I planted a church four years ago, I was working for this church plant full-time, invested our money into it to, to raise it on up, but I also had to get another full-time job to put food on the table. Southern California, they need a revival over there, let me tell you. It's expensive. So I got a full-time job as a maintenance man. I wanted something I could put headphones in and listen to sermons and podcasts all day long and just do the same boring, repetitive thing every single day. I don't want leadership. I don't want management. I'm doing enough of that at the church. I want boring, simple, predictable. So I got this great job and, and wonderful pay and so forth. But every day at 1235, all 160 employees would be done in the lunchroom, huge lunchroom. And every day I would mop and I would sweep, and I would fix, and I would clean everything that went on in that room. And so over a period of just a year, I developed this callus on my hand. And three years later, it's still there. Now, we all know a callus is basically when the skin toughens up in order to protect itself. For all of our guitar players in the room, you probably have calluses on the tip of your fingers to protect it against the harshness of those metal strings. So our skin can develop this toughness in order to protect itself. And if we're not careful, our hearts can do the same thing. I've been hurt. I've been betrayed. I've been stabbed in the back. Uh, this person's not treating me right. And you go through pain and hurt so much that soon enough you close your heart and you harden your heart. And the only thing that that's hurting is ourselves. And it's hurting our relationship with the Father. So we have to learn. There's ways that God wants to teach us to have a sensitive heart, a tender heart towards him. If you have your Bibles, go with me to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 45. And I love that Jesus and all that he did and just in his own lifestyle was always trying to teach, always trying to reveal something about his nature, and always trying to help these knucklehead disciples who are very much like us how to get great revelation. So Mark chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus walking on the water. The, well, Mark, I'm so sorry. Mark, Mark. I like Matthew's version, but there's one very important thing that Matthew doesn't say uh, in Jesus trying to walk past them that Mark does say. Plus the book of Mark, if you're familiar, is a very action-y type of a, of a book. So when it comes to the demons and the miracles and so forth, Mark must have watched a couple action movies before he, he wrote this book. So Mark, excuse me, chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. And I love this so much. Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who was commissioned to bring salvation to all people, took time to take naps and to get alone with God to pray, and to rest. And if Jesus Almighty would do that, how much more you and I? You know, even with Elijah, when he was depressed and suicidal, God said, take it easy, take a nap, eat some food, take another nap, eat some more food. So no condemnation. Naps are of the Lord. They're biblical, and they're, they're great. But Jesus took purposeful time to be alone 
As much as he had to do, Jesus was never in a hurry, and he valued spending time with God that his heart would not be hardened. In verse 47, when it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them. Uh, we'll pause right there for a second. I love that this, this sea, the Sea of Galilee, this lake, about, you know, average of 11, 13 miles long, maybe about eight miles wide. I don't know if Jesus, where he was at, was able to see. Typically, we can see seven miles into the distance. I'm not sure he can see in the physical or if he was seen in the spiritual. But Jesus was in a place by himself, and he saw that his disciples were straining. Now, Jesus, he calmed a bunch of storms. Jesus raised the dead. He did some pretty incredible miracles in his lifestyle that his disciples got firsthand witness to. So I don't know, this is, again, just my hypothesis. If Jesus was looking, I'm like, I wonder what they're going to do. I wonder what they're going to do. They know I can take care of the storm, but have you ever just watched your child to see what they're going to do? You know, oh, they're in the room and it's pretty messy. I wonder what they're going to do. Or, you know, you see them struggling with a, a, a math problem in their home, or I wonder how they're going to figure this out. Are they going to give up? What are they going to do? So I wonder if this parent attribute of Jesus was looking in on his disciples, wondering what they were going to do. But he saw them full of fear. He saw them in a very dangerous place. And so the Lord will always come to us when he sees us in that danger. But it says that he intended to pass them by. Again, Matthew's account doesn't say this, but Mark's does. And I'm wondering why. I wonder if he was just like showing them, I'm walking on water. Remember, guys, I'm the Messiah. I'm always with you. Fear not. But they didn't get it, and they cried out. And so this is what we see here. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed that it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. And many times Jesus went up to his disciples like, why do you still have unbelief? Why do you not have any faith? Is your heart still hard? What's going on there? Jesus used even the miracle, the loaves and the fishes to teach them that nothing was impossible for God. That God is always abundant, but he's never wasteful. And that he can do the impossible if we simply believe and guard our hearts. But the disciples, again, had this opportunity and they failed miserably. But we get to learn and we get to gain insight just like the disciples should have. And just in the same way that there are two types of hearts, I believe that there's two bits of encouragement that will help us to guard our hearts. Normally I have three points, but today I only have two for us. And so if you're taking notes, um, it's not written in your bulletin, so you can write this in. But the first thing is that our values determine our agreement. Our values determine our agreement. This past week, um, Thursday, Gabriel's best friend who had been with us for two weeks from San Diego uh, flew home. And so now our, our home is different. It's not just the two 14-year-old boys that want to do a bunch of stuff. And we had a blast. We went to uh, mini golf in the dark. We went to uh, go-kart racing. We did a bunch of fun things to keep them entertained. And one of the things we wanted to do was take them fishing. Gabriel's friend had never gone fishing before, had never caught a fish. And this beautiful city of Duncanville, the home of champions, has lovely little ponds where you can fish. And so we grabbed our poles and got some bait and tackle and all that and headed down to Lakeside Park, that nice catfish pond that has some trout. And they stock it with a thousand fish every two weeks. And so it's just a wonderful place. And so we were determined, determined to get Gabriel's friend his first fish. 
And so we went out there, and, and uh, they set up their chairs, and we got the right bait, and we set all the hooks, and they cast out, and man, did they get hooked, pun intended. And they just fell in love with fishing. And every single day almost in the evening time, they wanted to go fishing. And for me, I'm thinking, awesome, it's free, <laughs> and it's a great way to be outside. But it, I was marveling at this because fishing is so much work. You got to pack up, you got to gear up, you got to spend money, you got to get the right bait, you got to get out there, you got to set up your tent, you got to set up your chairs, you got to lose your hook about 14,000 times, you got to lose your bait every other cast, you know, you got to constantly rebait and constantly rehook, and it's so much work. And then to top it all off, at the end of the day, you could be there for hours and not even get a bite. And you're out in the, the blazing Texas heat, not even getting a bite. But for, for whatever reason, they continue to go after this because they have their eyes on the prize. And isn't that just like our hearts, that we don't have to discipline ourselves in the things that we delight in? The things that you find value in, the things that you delight in, you don't have to work at being motivated. You don't have to find the inspiration to get it done. You're pushed by it. It becomes a passion. It becomes a joy in your life. And I have values. I have values for this church. I believe that the, the presence of God should be paramount. I believe that sonship is our identity. I believe generosity is our delight. I believe that power is our expression. There's many core values about this church that I want to see and, and to allow revival to be birthed. In our home, we have values. My top value, obviously outside of the presence of God and so forth, my top value is peace. I want my home to be a place of peace. That at the end of the day, no matter how chaotic it could have been, when I come home, it's a place of rest and peace. And my wife, Enneagram 7, she's all about fun. Her core value is fun. If we're not having fun, time out, hold on. Let's recheck our values here. Let's, let's go over our hearts here. Why aren't we having fun? She likes adventure. She likes spontaneous stuff, you know, like, well, I like to plan. Okay, on Friday, we're going here. We're going to leave at this time. Here's all the things that we need. I've already communicated with these people. She's like, or we can go somewhere else and just drive and see where we end up. She loves spontaneity, you know, and she's really, you know, stretched my heart in a lot of areas to just go for the adventure and see what happens. And I'm finding a lot more joy, but... Those are the core values in our hearts. And I love the fact that we take time to really explore and pray over what means the most in our own hearts. Even going into relationships. When I ran a campus ministry for a large church, it was going to be me, a 20-something-year-old Hispanic kid, and a 74-year-old white dude from West Texas. And they're going to put us together to go run this church. I'd be the vision, teaching, pastoral care. He'd be all the financial admin, all those technical stuff. And we worked so well together, but something he did that has stuck with me for so many years, and I still use it to this day, is we sat down for a week. For a week, we had a meeting every day, and we came out with a 10-page document about his personality styles, my personality styles, his hurts and pains, my hurts and pains. There's even so much specific detail that he says, hey, I'm 74 years old. I've been a believer since the 40s. You know, I know I'm a mature believer, but for whatever dumb reason, if you see me do something wrong and you come up to me and say, I noticed last week you did this, but I'm pretty sure you should have done this. He says, I fall apart. You know, like a little girl, I just cry. I don't know why it hurts me so bad, but it does. I would rather you say it like this. I mean, that specific detail. In the five years that we worked to grow that church phenomenally and make it such a powerful family ministry, in all those years, we didn't have a single disagreement a single argument. We work so flawlessly together, but that's because we took the time to invest in the relationship, to fully understand each other's hearts, and to set values that were set forth so that we can follow, because value is what's going to determine your yes or your no. 
You know, obviously, we don't allow drugs in our homes. Why? Because it's a value. We value the Lord. We value not sinning, and so we will not have those things. And you came into my house with drugs, I'm going to ask you to leave in a loving yet firm way. Get out of my house, all right, if you bring that stuff in here. I don't want any part of that, and we don't value that. We are the ones who are responsible for setting our own values. And in Matthew 6, 21, it says, wherever your treasure is, your heart will be also. And so we want to guard our hearts. I believe one of the easiest and the most powerful ways that we can do that is to evaluate our hearts, renew our minds, and to set great values, what mean the most to us. Even King David asked for this. And you've heard me say this before, but King David sinned in a horrible way with Bathsheba. She was taking a bath on the rooftop. Her name is Bathsheba. That's still hilarious to me, but he sinned. And then he had no no remorse over his sin until the prophet Nathan came up to him and rebuked him. And he fell apart. He realized he was repentant. And then he went to the Lord and cried out, create in me a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me. He said, there's something off in here. The value system has gone wayward. Now I'm valuing sin. I'm valuing going after a married woman instead of this value of going after your face, God. So create in me a new heart. That word create, as I said before, in the Hebrew, is the same word that God used in Genesis when he created the world. David was almost begging God, just don't even fix me. Just give me a new heart. I want a new perspective. I want new values. I want a new passion for you, God. And it's up to us. Our values determine what we say yes to. They determine what we say no to. And it helps us to stay on course to keep the main things the main things. So if you don't know what means the most to you, if you don't know what you should be valuing, if you don't have a direct word from the Lord for you to hide and to guard, you'll say yes to multiple things rather than saying yes to the one thing. You know, it's, it's not in this life, it's not about constantly saying no, no, no to things. No, I shouldn't do that. No, I shouldn't do that. No, I shouldn't do that. It's saying yes so strongly to the one thing that everything else loses its appeal. That in your heart, the main thing is such the main thing that you find so much joy and value in the presence of God that all these other little temptations seem to fall off. They mean nothing to you. Basically looking to the devil and saying, that's all you got? (laughs) Nothing in comparison to my great God. Our values determine our agreement. And the next thing is that our focus determines our affection. And we've talked about that. Many of you testified this morning about putting our affection on the Lord. But our focus determines our affection our focus. And our focus is basically what we worship and what we can fear. And we live in a distracted world. You know, back in uh, the 4th of July, we got to go to San Diego and I got to revisit the horrific demonic traffic that is known in Southern California. I dropped my family off at the beach. I said, I need to go to Walmart real quick and I need to go pick up some lunch for us. I'll be right back. That was at 11 a.m. And just going within a half mile radius, I didn't get back till 2.50 in the afternoon because of the traffic. I said, thank you, Jesus, for the nation of Texas. I'm so glad to be here. <laughs> but uh, I went on this very familiar uh, freeway. It's in North San Diego County. It's the deadliest freeway in San Diego County, Highway 78. It connects I-5 with I-15, and it goes straight across about 12 miles. And there's this one section right on College Boulevard where the freeway takes a big dip, then it turns and goes straight up. And what ends up happening is that people are not paying attention and they slow down on the uphill and they go from 75 miles an hour to probably about 45 miles an hour without even realizing it. And it creates this big clog of traffic. And so people who are flying right off of I-5 and getting onto 78, they're flying and they don't pay attention that traffic is stopping. And so I know this and I'm, I'm a safe driver. I 
don't go too far over the speed limit, like four or five miles over the speed limit if I'm in a rush. And then um, I always leave about three or four car lanes in front of me in case I need to slam on my brakes. I'm a very safe guy. I'm a safe driver. And so I know this is coming up. So now I give eight car lengths because I know they're going to slam on the brakes and I'm preparing for it. But unfortunately, the guy behind me wasn't preparing for it. And in this giant Chevrolet 3500 truck, this guy, I can see him in my rearview mirror, is on his phone. And he's going 75 miles an hour. I'm going probably 25. And he does this, he goes, and slams on his brake. And this truck, fishtails, white smoke is everywhere. He's going in between three lanes trying to get control and finally pulls over, probably thinking I need to call my wife to bring me a new pair of shorts. And he stops, you know, in the, the, the median there. And I don't know how he didn't hit a single person. But distraction can be deadly. Death by distraction. And we live in this crazy, distracted culture that's getting worse and worse and worse. We're not just in a, in a distracted world. We're in a place now where we need to be entertained and amused by multiple things at the same time. You know, it's getting pretty bad with some of the addictions we have to our media and, and so forth. But we can't allow that to happen in our faith. Because you will worship what you focus on. And half the time, you will focus on what you fear. And you got to be careful that what you fear, you'll begin to worship. It has to be the Lord. And we have to focus on him because that's where our affection needs to go. If at any time you feel the affection of the Father leave you, you need to stop and say, whoa, where did I take my eyes off the Lord? If you're walking in stress, you need to stop and say, where did I leave my peace? Because he is always with me. We live in this distracted culture, and we got to be more like Jesus, who is so keyed in to the Father. And John 5, 19 says, I do whatever I see the Father doing. Now, Jesus heard from the Father and so forth, but I love that it says he saw, and whatever he saw the Father doing, he did as well. Moment by moment, Jesus was always looking to the Father on what he should say and what he should do. And then famously, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, you know, lean not on your own understanding. Trust the Lord. Trust him. And I believe that if we want to see our focus change, we have to fix our trust. And remind ourselves through testimony, remind ourselves in our own personal spiritual history that he's good and he has never let us down. That there is power in faith. I mean, the scriptures talk about that we can move mountains if we have faith as small as a what? A mustard seed. I mean, I have mustard seeds in my cupboard. I should have brought one today. But do you know how tiny those things are? They're so small. It said if you have just that much faith, you can move mountains. But there's a flip side of that, and we got to be careful because in Matthew 13, 58, Jesus is walking into a town, and there was so much unbelief in that town, it says in verse 58 that he could only do a couple little healings because of the unbelief in that city. So just as much as a small amount of faith can move mountains, a small amount of unbelief can hinder the miracles of what God wants to do in your life. He's willing, he's able, but our, is our heart so hardened towards him that we restrict the flow of God's power and his love in and through our lives? The choice really is ours. And I'll conclude with, with this um, a very near and dear issue to my heart. You guys know my testimony and what I've, I've been through with a senior pastor who fell into sin and betrayed us and so forth and left us with no job and, you know, scrambling to a place of homelessness at one point. And I remember weeks after the district removed that pastor and I'd already planted a church, you know, weeks had gone by and I was at Lowe's uh, and I was just getting, I believe it was a, a door to put in a doggy door for our puppies. And so I'm carrying this door and, and walking around and I see that pastor. He comes right around the corner. So in the distance from like here to the back of the sanctuary, we lock eyes. He went beat red. I think he thought I was going to punch him in the throat or something like that. He was so afraid. 
I was laughing a little bit on the inside. And I just remember this awkward pause, this awkward silence, this nervousness on his face. And he had no idea, should I run? Should I fake a smile? What should I do here? And I remember so, like crystal clear, I remember the father saying, Rudy, your choice is right here. Your choice right here. How are you going to allow this to affect your life? Or what are you going to do to change the circumstance? So I smiled first. I said, get over here. Give him a hug. We caught up. What are you doing now? What's new in your life? He says, well, everything, apparently. <laughs> you know, now that he fell in sin, he was scrambling. And I filled him in on the church and so forth. But I just remember, I got a lot of healing to go. The hurt is still there. But I will refuse to play the victim. I will refuse to let my heart stay hardened towards a man who is just a fallen man. And I will choose to put on love and forgiveness and to allow God to do his justice and allow him to continue to heal my heart. But it was a choice that I had to make. And so we have talked about for the last three weeks about our identity, how God has made us, the things we can do to keep ourselves planted in that identity through the power of a renewed mind. We broke down the spirit, the soul, and the body and, and why we are perfect in God in, in the spirit and our body still has a ways to go and we're working out our salvation in our soul. And those are all great foundational, powerful truths, but God will not force them on us. So it's up to us and our choice. How do you want to live your life? To continue to massage that pain, to be the victim, to feel like everybody's against you, to feel like I can't because I lack, or all these other excuses, or to say, all I need is a mustard seed. All I need is a little bit of this and to guard my heart so that a little bit of unbelief will never get in. The choice is really ours. So if you're able, if you would stand with me uh, this morning, I want to finish our time here and just an attitude of prayer and God's blessing upon you as we depart today. So Father, thank you for my friends. And I know that we've, we've covered a lot of ground the last couple weeks. And I feel, God, that in my ministry, this is one huge area that you want to continue to use me in. But I also believe that this is one giant area that the enemy wants to constantly have influence. If you would go to you, Jesus, and say, if you are the Son of God, and try to bring doubt, how much more would he attack your children? So right now, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for every heart who is here not only in a church just to do a good duty or to check something off the list, but genuinely wants your presence, God. Genuinely wants to be touched by you, filled by you to trade our sorrows for joy, to trade our worries for faith. Thank you, God, for the things that you are doing in and through our worship, in and through the teaching of the word. And now as we go about a new week, I pray that you would completely bathe every mind and every heart in your truth, in your blood. I pray that there be a supernatural covering upon every mind and heart this week. Father, truths have gone out, so we know the enemy is upset, but we will pay him no mind. We will not be worried about that. We will walk in the, the strength of your truth and what you have declared over us. We are who you say we are and nothing less, nothing more. Thank you, God, for the blessing that's upon my friends and their relationships and their finances and their own personal ministries. May you continue this week to fill them up with your joy, with more hope, with more faith, so that they can lock eyes with you face to face with the Father in your presence, to be loved on by you, and to be filled up with your goodness. We love you today, God. Go before us now. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you.